As has already been mentioned, what a great blessing it is for us to be able to gather together today that our health and the things are as well with us as they are. And this has already been mentioned. Our mind certainly rushes to those who are suffering sickness, illness this morning, and our list is lengthy. And we certainly trust and hope that the blessings of the great God of heaven will soon be with them, that they may enjoy a speedy recovery and be able to soon be back here with us in the public assemblies. As we come to this Sunday, this third Sunday in December, might I ask you to think about perhaps a question that has often passed your mind, maybe even on many occasions. As the Bible discusses that subject you and I recognize as eternal life, the issue that quite often is presented is, can a person know that he is saved? Is it presumptuous? Is it in fact apart from the will of God with affirmation to say, I know that I am saved, and I know that eternal life is mine, and I know that heaven will be my eternal home? There are those who would perhaps challenge or question that kind of firmness, sternness, if you will. Let us use John's words in 1 John 5, verses 11 to 13, even as we think about that this morning, and as we discuss life itself, that'll take us, in fact, in many interesting ways, as we use the Word of God to guide us along that path. May we start by way of introduction by perhaps thinking of these things. Would you not agree with me that there are some terms that are just difficult to define? Even though we may turn to Webster's Dictionary or some other particular dictionary, nonetheless we inherently feel that some words just simply are deeper in definition than what that book may present. And I'd submit to you that the terms life and death fall into that category. If in fact you turn to Webster's Dictionary, life may well be defined this way. Existence. A vital force. But now let's ask, well, what is a vital force? And what does it mean to exist? All the while, you see, when we try to utilize a dictionary like that in the hope of defining it adequately, it falls short, in fact, pathetically short. As in all other things that bear eternal significance, and in all other matters of ultimate transcendent importance, there is really only one source book. What does the Bible give for definitions of these terms? And I'd submit that any definition that the Holy Scriptures present will be infinitely deeper and furthermore greatly of more aid to us than those that men may try to concoct. For men do not have the inspiration of heaven at its back. Men do not have the thrust, the power, the omnipotent knowledge of the God of heaven. With all that being said, as you and I think then about eternal life today, we certainly will have opportunity to speak a little bit about physical life, what that entails and what it means, but from that we will deduce and draw those interesting discussions about life eternal, life that has no end, life that's everlasting, life that extends on and on without any prospect of ending. Eternal life is something, of course, you and I from an early age of appreciation in the Bible have longed and cherished to appreciate, know, and experience. But yet, as we think about it deeply, it even challenges us more. Let us then turn our attention and think about some Bible definitions first. What does life mean? L-I-F-E. Can we define it? Let's let God do that for us. As we specifically turn our attention to James 2, verse 26. 
The hopeless definitions of man, as we've already noted, seem to fail and fall far short of what the case demands. But the very last verse in James chapter 2, the 26th verse of that noble chapter, it is true that the thrust in the primary context involves the subject of faith on the one hand and works on the other, the fact that they must go together. You cannot acceptably divorce works from faith, for that's the only way that faith is made manifested. But as James reaches the last verse, he thus notes, as he speaks by comparison, that the body without the Spirit, is dead. We thus have in one small thrust, in one small sentence, far more than any mortal man could ever have written in terms of definition for what life is and what death is. All in one short sentence. Isn't God great? And hasn't He defined it so beautifully in such a short space? Over the next few moments, think with me about what that does say. The body without the spirit is dead. Immediately we are turned in our mind back to the scene of man's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Man was not simply and only a physical being. He is an immortal spirit clothed in this mortal flesh. An immortal spirit. Made in the image and likeness of God, humanity, men and women, you and me, are immortal spirits possessing that very idea and entity whereby God through His being has given that to us and that's what we are. We can't change that. For a period of time, that particular spirit, that immortal spirit that is you and me, inhabits or indwells this physical body, this thing we can touch and feel and see. James there informs us, that in fact the body without the spirit is dead and thus we learn that so long as that spirit indwells and inhabits the body there's life in the flesh and that's what life consists of. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Paul identified those three constituent components of mankind. There's the body, there's the soul, and there's the spirit. When that immortal spirit that you and me inhabits that body the body is said to be alive. There's life within it. But notice, he furthermore informs us that death is that occasion, that incident, that scene in which the spirit departs the body. And thus that leaves behind this body with the spirit gone, and that's what he says is a dead body. And thus we thirdly learn then that that body in which the spirit has departed is now dead. The life-giving, animating force is gone. In terms of life and death, that is it. Far more extensive than just a vital force. And it certainly does a better job than just saying that something exists. But to think about life in that vein, and to look at it from that way, notice how many other texts in the Bible amplify and help us appreciate that. As early as Genesis 25 8, we notice there the critical scene of the death of Abraham. The text simply states, in terms of his death and referring to that event, that this old man, being full of years, gave up the ghost and he died. Gave up the ghost? That's that King James phraseology in which things made reference to his spirit departed. And in consequence of that fact, Abraham was dead. Well, that seems to harmonize exceedingly well with James 2.26, doesn't it? But yet ten chapters later, in Genesis 35.18, there, 
we notice that Jacob's beloved wife Rachel, in giving birth to her second son Benjamin, she died. But the text doesn't just simply say it that way, for it says, For as her soul was departing, she gave birth, for she died. Her soul departed? That's what the text said. And thus, as she gave birth to this son, who she called Benoni, and yet her husband called him Benjamin, we notice then the powerful thrust of the fact there is another reference to her soul in departing. As you and I appreciate these thoughts, do they not also aid us as we come to 1 Kings 17? For there the prophet Elijah, as he labored there in the city of Zarephath with a widow lady, a widow woman, she had a son, but this son became ill and died. She was sufficiently upset that she in fact chastised Elijah for it. Elijah proceeded by an interesting series of events to bring, to restore life to that son who had died. But what did the text say? When Elijah prayed and when he beseeched God to return the spirit, the text says his spirit returned and he became alive again. The spirit without the body is dead. The body with the spirit is alive. Can we not then appreciate and see that the whole notion of life is directly related to being in contact with the vital force that provides life? As long as that spirit indwells the body, the body's alive. But when that spirit departs, the body is dead. As we think about eternal life, the characteristics associated with it, we too should appreciate there must be unity, association, harmony with the life-giving force or else there can be no life. Well, we're ready to consider an extension of that. What does that mean, especially as John refers to it here? Well, as we look at that, let's go back to verse 11 of 1 John 5. In that 11th verse, John writes, And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. To say what we just said a moment ago, we easily appreciate that in the flesh life is brief. Our experience testifies to that. Even the scriptures testify that indeed life in this flesh is but brief even at its best. Did not the psalmist in the long ago say in verse 10 of Psalm 90 that if by reason of strength our years be even fourscore, having normally by record there been threescore years and ten, he noted even then that is their strength sorrow and labor for we soon fly away and we're cut off. The fact is that even in that sense, 70 years, 80 years, maybe a few more, it is still brief at its best. Hebrews 9.27 in fact affirms for, indeed, it's a direct appointment. And as we are appointed once to die and after this the judgment, the very fact and thought then that in the flesh life is not perpetual. When Adam and Eve partook of that forbidden fruit and were thus sent out, driven out of the Garden of Eden, they no longer had access to the tree of life. And the sentence of death has been man's lot ever since. However, when the Lord came, and the recognition of the beauty of the gospel, there is a spiritual life that in fact is recognized as eternal, and that is the one to which John here refers, this spiritual eternal life we long for. 
men have often desired by way of medicine, by way of other means to prolong life. There have been those who through the ages have thought they found fountains of youth and thought that they found other means to lengthen and extend and stretch life in the flesh. And every one of them are now dead. They have not succeeded in that point and in that reality. But yet the Bible on many occasions speaks of life that never ends, eternal life. The first thing we learn in 1 John 5.11, again, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. Where's the source and who provides this life? God does. Men will never be able to acquire it, find it, procure it, design it, discover it, or anything else. God is the source of this life to which John refers. And notice also that he says this is the record. That's an interesting term. John doesn't merely say, starting the verse with, God has given, and he says this is the record. God has given evidence. God has witnessed of it. God has made provision with regard to providing abundant evidence that this exists. Those who doubt then the life beyond the grave act foolishly. They ignore the evidence of all the design that God has housed in this creation and all that points toward the one hereafter. Jesus did come. That cannot be denied. He worked miracles and that is abundantly testified. He rose from the grave. Abundant evidence exists of that fact. Those who then would doubt the reality of life beyond death are such that they're ignoring the evidence presented to them. This is the record, John says. The record, the witness, the evidence is among us. And furthermore, that God hath given to us eternal life. We've noted then that life in the flesh ends in death when that spirit departs the body. But this life to which John refers, eternal life, it has its source in God. We must look only to Him to find it, to discover the things about it, so that we could learn about the nature and participate in it. This life to which John refers, notice he says it springs from God eternal. God gives it. It's not that you and I can earn it. It is not that it can ever be deserved or merited or worked out by some means. It is God's gift. It is His means of showering upon us those blessings that we will receive as long as we are in accordance with His will and meet the conditions whereby He will grant that eternal life. Oh, the deepness of eternal life. It may be fair at this point to recall that there are many things that use words like that that's hard for us to fully imagine. Our students may learn about infinity in math classes, something that's truly bigger than you can ever imagine, like, like the number system. No matter what number you name, you can always add one and get a bigger one. There's never an end to the size of the numbers. Our universe is so very vast, it isn't infinite, but it's so very large. And yet to think about life that never ends. Those patriarchs in the early days of Genesis may have lived close to a thousand years. Adam and Methuselah and some others lived beyond 900 years in length, but even that is nothing compared to eternity. And yet these books tell us about life that really never ends. It's unending. There's never a time when the animating force that provides it is removed from it. John has already told us the record exists and the source is God. But in fact, can we not go much deeper than that? 
the firmness and definiteness with which John states this indicates it's not just a faint hope. It's not just a distant glimmer. This is powerful reality. Life eternal. We're inching closer to a deeper understanding. Knowing the source, how do we acquire it? It's obvious we'd all like it. No one, I suppose, is fond and anxiously excited about the thought of the Spirit departing the body, at least from a fleshly perspective. After all, sometimes there's pain and agony that associates to that departure. But notice, what can we say about this eternal life? Verse 12 leads us a step further. In verse number 12 it says, again speaking of God, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. We learn nextly that eternal life is only, and let me emphasize only, in Christ. It will never be found elsewhere, nor can it ever be discovered or seen in ways other than by association with none other than the Son of God. By way of remembrance, again, note that the body is dead when the Spirit departs. Well, here, as we think about eternal life, there must be then association with Christ as the life-giving thrust, force, and influence in order for eternal life to be had. No association with Christ. No eternal life. In fact, it's fair to say there are many things that men may possess here on earth, and they may do it without Jesus. A man may have a wife, and yet he may be an ungodly sort. He may have children, he may have a nice job, a house, many things, but one thing he'll never have without Jesus is eternal life. It's impossible. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, in a very exclusive statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Isn't it interesting that the same one who wrote that is the same one who wrote this text in 1 John 5. Notice again in verse 11 and 12, He that hath the Son hath life. And thus the pertinent question, do I have the Son? Do you have the Son? For if we do, the text says we have life. But if we don't, we don't have life. That's as simple an English sentence as could ever be prescripted. Either you have the Son and thus have life, or you don't. Life can't be had any other way. There are those in our world who may suppose and think that they have that eternal life by some means other than the Son, by some means other than Jesus. And we hope they come to a better understanding before their demise from this earth. For the text again simply states the fact that it cannot be otherwise. What then does that directly lead us to ask? How do I have Jesus? How do I have Christ? I freely confess that unless God had answered that, we'd never know the answer. There may be some who think that it derives from a feeling in the heart, or that it derives from a mental ascent of some form. But the Bible doesn't say anything to that effect. In fact, on many occasions, we are given explicit statements as to how we can know that we're in Christ, how we can know that our association is one-on-one, -on -one, full and complete with Him. Let's begin that journey in Romans 6. For there, on that occasion, beginning in verse 3, 
Paul, in writing to the Romans, he had just convinced them in chapter 5 about the utter and absolute necessity of their association with God. And now he comes to the point of identifying more clearly the nature of sin and what it does. That will carry him through the end of the next chapter. But at the opening of chapter 6, he says in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul, what was that? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into? Preposition, it means change of venue, change of location, change of prescription. He didn't say in, he said into. How does one then come into Christ? He's baptized into Christ, and there's no other way. And thus, those who refuse to submit to that or think that they can come into Christ some other way, they're mistaken. But notice also other texts that teach the same thing in Colossians 2.12. Buried with him by baptism. One is buried with Christ in the act of baptism, the mode in which his sins are washed away from him. All of that helps us appreciate the thoroughness and fullness of coming into contact with Christ and his blood. And as all that happens in baptism, perhaps Paul summarized it so clearly at the end of Galatians 3, when there he said, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death baptized into Jesus Christ, we begin to gain a richer and fuller appreciation of the power of baptism. It's only through it that contact with the Son occurs, and thus only by it, and in consequence of it, eternal life can be had. No scriptural baptism, no freedom from sin, and thus no eternal life to be enjoyed. Those then who would perhaps say that baptism is non-essential or that it's not necessary, where does one enter Christ then? How does one come in contact with his blood? We appreciate that as John made these statements and references here, he had earlier stated in this chapter the significance of the blood and the significance of the water. Those seem to clearly have major importance in his mind, and they point us to the beautiful reality of entering Jesus. Perhaps it would be fair to conclude the brief statement of verse 12 by noting then what should be the viewpoint of many as we think about their statement that we'll all are recipients of eternal life ultimately. It's God's gift. Nothing has to be done to achieve it. That seems odd, doesn't it? in light of the fact that verse 12 says you have to have the Son. Are you then trying to argue or are some trying to say that you could have the life without the Son despite His commandments and in spite of His teachings? It can never be that way. For we must have the Son if we are to have life. The very fact of all of these hastens us to verse 13. And in fact, that's the major question that we began with today. We've come an interesting journey to arrive at this point. Can a person know that he is saved? Is it possible, and in fact to do so in a scriptural way, to affirm that I know that I'm saved? In fact, if you were to take a poll of members of the body of Christ, those in churches of Christ, and just typically ask them, are you saved? 
Will you go to heaven? The overwhelmingly vast answer is, I hope so. By far and away, that's the most popular answer given among churches of Christ. That answer, I hope so. Now let us quickly say that the word hope, as it's used in the New Testament, does have within it the idea of confident expectation. And if that is the means by which that question is answered, then we would say a hearty amen to that answer. But you and I know all too well that in this modern day, the word hope most often in our common usage doesn't mean that. We might say, I hope it's going to be sunny tomorrow. And all the while, all we mean by that is, well, we really don't know if it's going to be or not, but we'd like to think, and it'd be better for us if it were. There is no confident expectation usually in the way we use the word hope. All that being said, listen with me to verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. John thus says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. John didn't say that you might think that you do, you might expect you do, you might meagerly hope you do. He said that you might know. Four-letter word, know. K-N-O-W. And isn't that one of the strongest words in terms of reality, in terms of what we understand and appreciate? John said you can know that you have eternal life. And I have written these things to support that knowledge. How do you know you have eternal life? You and I then can really say, I, when someone asks us, do you know you're saved? Do you know you have eternal life? We could say yes. And that would not be presumptuous. It would not be aside or apart from the reality of God. We're still relying on God as judge. But we're basing it on ideas like verse 13 of 1 John 5. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. That thought and that knowledge helps us understand that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, a spirit of timidity, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, but rather of a sound mind and confident hope and expectation. We naturally live in this world dependent and reliant upon the goodness and graciousness of God. And in fact, according to James, the primary motive of each day is if the Lord will, we'll do this or that and enter into a city and buy and sell and get gain. James 4, 13 following. But all the while, as long as we walk in the Spirit, as long as we walk following the orders and commandments of the New Testament, eternal life is promised. It is the record that God has provided. It's God's gift to us. It's the powerful destiny that you and I have to look forward to. Can we know we have eternal life? Absolutely. Can we thus walk each day confidently expecting that beautiful day when it shall be ours in reality? Absolutely. Many a person has been comforted by that thought. Though this life may bring its difficulties, aches, troubles, pains, sorrows, disappointments, discouragements, and so on, nonetheless we know we can look forward to a day and a time and a reality, a reality, when eternal life will be ours. It'll be a beautiful abode, a harmonious place of peace and joy. And interestingly and powerfully, 
As we learned earlier, the life-giving source will never be removed. Remember, the body without the Spirit's dead. But if life is eternal, the animating force can never be taken away. In eternal life, that source is Jesus. And doesn't the New Testament teach us that on that day of judgment, when the blessed refrain to the saved is presented, Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord, Matthew 25. We can see that we'll always be with Jesus. The sun will shine, if you will, day and night, never darkness, Revelation 21. That eternal life helps us understand that the Bible often speaks in promise and teaches us that there were New Testament characters who knew that they were saved. Return with me to the promise of James in James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. There's an absolute promise upon those who do not give up, who do not lose hope, but who endure to the end. As the Apostle Paul often made reference to those matters, we can remember that he himself is a prime and great, and great example. Do we not remember how that in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, as he approached the nearness of the end of his own life, he nonetheless did so with such great confidence and assurance that he could even make this statement. He said, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul did not approach death with a thought of, well, I hope so. It is my hope that perhaps in the dawning of the resurrection morning that all will be well with me. But rather, three chapters later, he could confidently say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. What does that mean, Paul? Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but now notice, but to all of them also that lays appearing. You and I can thus naturally understand the same hope, confident expectation, the same beautiful trust, in the reality of eternal life. Can we know we're saved? Yes. That salvation, and God doesn't lie, Titus 1 verse 2, comes as we appreciate the linkage with Jesus and always remain firmly walking hand in hand with Him. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5 3. As we walk within in the commandments of God, we not only can recognize that this mere life upon earth is but a preparation for the one beyond, but we can look forward to that reality, eternal life indeed. Verses 11, 12, and 13 have again given us ideas, and as we've noted, examples could be listed in abundance. We noted Paul, but perhaps Job in the Old Testament would be another now, we should remember that Job lived before Jesus ever came to this earth, before the Son was ever born. But yet even Job in those early ages of time still nonetheless had the beautiful and trustful reality of the confident hope of a beautiful resurrection morning. Job said so. As we think about that, notice then all the saints of all time have that confident hope. The looking forward to eternal life, life with no end. Perhaps in summary to today's lesson, we'll use another scripture or two to amplify, to perhaps draw it to summary. 
But one of the things that we each can see is that life in the flesh truly offers many grand blessings, and we each appreciate the goodness of God each day. But nonetheless, we do look forward to eternal life. Life without any of the ill effects of life in this flesh. Life with, in fact, no end ever, ever or ever. Doesn't that then paint a whole new picture to the way Revelation ends in Revelation chapters 20 to 22? For there, as that writer John, the same one who wrote this first John 5, as he described the scene after Satan and all of his followers are cast into the lake burning with fire and brimstone, he then gives a picture. And the picture in chapters 20 and 22 is one where he contrasts life with the second death. And we have in essence come full circle. We started the lesson by trying to define what's life and what's death. And we noted that God did that so powerfully well. But notice the Bible speaks of a second death. If we think, well, the first death is bad enough, what about the second one? What is it? Well, perhaps we can summarize that again so quickly. The second death is that eternal separation from the life-giving force that would make eternal life. And thus, the second death it means and involves and is described as the casting of those into hell. For God is not there. That eternal place of fire and brimstone, that eternal abode, again, no end ever, but it's not life. It's the second death. You see, all of those who receive eternal life are exempt from the second death. But on the other hand, those who receive the second death have not eternal life. In which state will you and I be? Are you in linkage then with Jesus? Are you walking day by day with him? Have you been baptized to come into his body initially? We noted earlier in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, that's how it's accomplished. Today, if your name is not prepared on that book of life so that eternal life is yours, understand that at least at this point, the second death is yours. Don't let that state of affairs continue to be, but rather come to Jesus at once. Do not delay, do not hesitate, for he did die that you might have eternal life. If we could assist you in making ready, being prepared, having your name enrolled in the book of life, brethren are happy and anxious to aid you today, we'd be happy to assist you in your confession, your baptism. But if you have done that, but haven't walked according to the ways of Jesus, then your fellowship with him has been broken, First John 1, 7 tells us, and his blood is no longer cleansing you from sin. As such, you are again those ready to receive the second death. Don't let that state of affairs be. Don't let it continue, but rather, even as together we stand and as we sing in a moment, will you not come if we could help you, be it by prayer and rededication or as you initially respond to the call of the gospel. At this point, if we could be of any assistance, let us know that and be of aid to you while together we stand and while we sing.